Hi guys, welcome to the Katie Halper Show. We're very excited to bring you this interview with George Shikarelamar, who caused quite the controversy when he tweeted, all I want for Christmas is white genocide. Now, as usual, we want to remind you and encourage you to join our Patreon campaign. Go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show, and there you will find all sorts of bonus content and goodies, and it's definitely worth it. And you can, depending on your contribution level, you can get a calendar, a Katie Halper Show mug. Those are looking really good, really popular. Our next live show will be Wednesday, January 11th at the Brooklyn Commons. That's 388 Atlantic Avenue at 7 p.m. The theme will be the media under Trump. And our special guests will be Abby Martin of Telesaur and the Empire Files and Nando Villa of Fusion. Things that you can access as a Patreon supporter are things like an extended interview with Susie Weissman and Bob Brenner, an extended interview with Ben Jealous, the audio from a never-before-released live show on Bernie Made Me White, and many more things coming down the pike, including video from our last live show and video of my interview with George Chicarello Mar. See you guys next week. But first, a word from our not-so-corporate sponsor. In a world where major telecommunication companies have outsourced jobs and helped the government spy on U.S. citizens, wouldn't it be nice to use your phone as a force for good and not evil? Well, you can, thanks to Credo Mobile, a progressive phone company. Every month they take a share of their revenue, more than $150,000, and donate it to incredible progressive organizations, and that adds up. They've already contributed over $81 million to organizations like the Brennan Center for Justice, Amnesty International, and Planned Parenthood. And Credo customers vote to determine which organizations get how much money. So it's literally democracy in action. Not only does Credo fund progressive causes, but you get to use the phone of your choice with great service. Right now, Credo has a special deal for Katie Halper listeners. You guys, this is so exciting. Our own deal, guys. Go to credo.com slash Katie and get 50% off unlimited talk and text for two years. Plus, select smartphones are free. Okay, you guys, you're getting 50% off unlimited talk and text for two years. And depending on which phone, you could get the phone for free. It'll be a smartphone. We're not talking flip phones. Just go to credo.com slash K-A-T-I-E. That's credo.com slash K-A-T-I-E credo.com slash katie or call 1-800-260-1254 that's 1-800-260-1254 and tell them katie helper sent ya don't forget that part it's time your phone company represented your values so go to credo.com slash katie today hi everyone Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Halper Show. You can hear us every Wednesday at 7 p.m. WBAI, that's WBAI.org or 99.5 FM. Hi, Reggie. How are you? Hey, Katie. How's it going? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's winter in New York. It's, it's sort of got, it was warm at one point and then it's gotten cold and it was warm at one point and then it gotten cold again. You know, fluctuation, but of course, there's no such thing as climate change. Right, exactly. Well, you know, it's true. It's winter. It's a, it reminds me of uh, springtime for Hitler in Germany. Is this song from the producers that great Mel Brooks 
platform. Right. And now it's springtime for Hitler and Germany. Deutschland is happy and gay. We're marching to a faster pace. Look out, here comes the master race. Um, and now, of course, it's winter for Donald Trump in America. How do you like that? Winter in, wait. It's winter, winter for right. Donald Trump in America. Winter is Donald Trump in America. Okay. Okay. So we're really excited to bring you a very special show today. You may have heard of someone who's been in the news lately, George Chicarello Mar. George Chicarello Mar. I you know, sort of heard of him. You sort of heard of him? I sort of um, He gained fame for a very controversial, allegedly controversial tweet. Um, he is an associate professor of international politics at the Philadelphia-based Drexel University. And um, Sarah Lazar has a really great article about this in Alternate. And uh, just to set it up a little bit, what happened was on December 24th, Chigarello Mar posted a tweet stating, all I want for Christmas is white genocide, end quote. He explained the tweet in a later statement. Quote, for those who haven't bothered to do their research, white genocide is an idea invented by white supremacists and used to denounce everything from interracial relationships to multicultural policies and most recently against a tweet by State Farm Insurance. It is a figment of the racist imagination. It should be mocked, and I'm glad to have mocked it. Okay, and by the way, the State, State Farm Insurance ad that was attacked for leading to white genocide uh-huh. is literally of a black man and a white woman, and he's holding an engagement ring. So th- these are the types of things, of threats, that people, white supremacists call white genocide. Get it? Yeah, that's the true threat of the country, indeed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I can't sleep at night knowing about all the black men proposing to white women, all the uh, white women pr- proposing to black women. I mean, don't even get me started oh, on that. Oh, no, no. You, now you're opening up a whole new can of worms on that one. Exactly. That's just awful. I should have given a trigger warning. I hope uh, my was... white supremacist listeners are sitting down because I got a lot of them. <laughs> I'm sure I do. Well, you know, um, as long as the white supremacist uh, listeners donate to WBAI so they can continue to be more offended uh here you know so as long as they give money they could be offended as long as they want to be yeah they're allowed to be anyone really they're allowed to be offended and we thank you white listeners who are supremacists who are support who are wbai supporters we appreciate i love the idea that we're reaching (laughs) a single person right now i mean i don't maybe you never know there could be a very smart person who realizes that to have his finger on the pulse of the left of the transformational left the left that will really change things up they know how do i how do i know what's happening how do i try to stay one step ahead gotta listen to what katie halper's saying on the katie halper show on wbai now how do i make sure that show sticks around which is my little portal into the left i gotta make sure it's funded so thank you franz Right, and so they're woke and also offended at the same time. Exactly, that's a good thing. They're they're not. Wo- I mean, oh, I see. They're woke in. Right. Yeah, they're you know, woke the in. Alpha show. Remember they're woke, what we yeah. are. 
Yeah, they're, they're woke end. Right. And they're we're not. Fin- right. We're woke at the wheel. We're woke, woke at the wheel. Woke at the wheel. That is the, the slogan of the well, show. Well, it, it more like being shaken up and whether they're woke or not is is up right. to them. But, but we're woke at the wheel. Yes. We are woke at the wheel. Yeah, right. that's our slogan, our right. motto. Right. So what happened was after he, he tweeted this, um, uh, Breitbart, the white nationalist publication, um, wrote about it. And in the comment sections, of course, there was a death threat and lots of heinous, awful things, um, messages that were against LB- LGBTQ, African-Americans. Um, and the story spread to Reddit and 4chan. And before long, because Sarah Lazar writes an alternate, before long, George Chicarella Marr had become target of a coordinated campaign to contact his employer, Drexel University. Chicarella Marr said he awoke Christmas morning to death threats targeting him and his family. Wow. But Drexel, instead of defending Chicarella Marr, appeared to be swayed by the pressure it received and publicly condemned his social media remarks as, quote, utterly reprehensible and deeply disturbing. Just to explain a little bit more about this, what happens is that uh, Loundis says, quote, fears of the decline of so-called white race have been around for a long time with different iterations. In the American context, it goes back to fears of slave revolt. You can see it in Thomas Jefferson's notes when he describes slavery as holding a, quote, wolf by the ears, end quote. He claimed that once you let the wolf go, it will turn on you and devour you. Hmm, okay. Anyway, so that's some of the background. And again, anyone who studies this and looks at this stuff knows very well that white genocide is a term that's used by people who are white supremacists to describe anything that they see as threatening to white supremacy. Um, that's actually in, in that in in that context it is is you could call it white it's white supremacy genocide it's the attempt to genocide to kill to to mur to get rid of white so the supremacy. genocide is the supremacy is that what you're saying well no I'm saying it, we could it, you know it is a get if you think of genocide as elimination right 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 you could say that white if it's really it would be white supremacy genocide that we want. I get what you're Which saying. Which isn't genocide. We're not killing anyone. We're not calling no, I for know. anyone it's, to be killed. It's, it's, the, it's the death of an ideology. Exactly. Yes. Right. You nailed it, as usual, Reggie. Yeah, yes, yeah. thank you. Um, Reggie reigns me in. Um, and so, again, just wanted to give you that, that, um, that background. Drexel offered a very lukewarm response, which was like, of course, use the freedom of speech. You can say whatever you want. But that's utterly reprehensible. Because they have no idea what he was talking about, which is fine. Like, it's not their fault that they don't know this. But what you do before issuing an apol- uh, a public statement is probably ask the person what he meant. Or, like, do a Google. Go to the Google, the Google. And, and type it in. Um, and so he tweeted again. He tweeted, just to re- uh, reiterate, all I want for Christmas is white genocide. And then he tweeted later on. To clarify, when the whites were massacred during the Haitian Revolution, that was a good thing indeed. And then he deleted the first tweet and um, made his Twitter private. Now, again, the reason that he, just to clarify, he, he, we talk about this in the interview that we're about to play, but the reason he talks about the, the Haitian Revolution is because he, while he's saying that, no, he's not calling for any violence right now in this context, He's saying that he doesn't condemn all violence in all circumstances, in a, and especially in this historical circumstance, right? And, of course, violence against uh, slave owners is very different from violence perpetuated by people who are, are free, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that's that's the context. And just so you know, for when when we talk about his Haiti quote, the, the quote that he Haiti tweet that the tweet was um, to clarify when the whites were massacred during the Haitian Revolution. That was a good thing indeed. Um, the good news is that Drexel University Chicarello says that they are now standing by him and supporting him fully, which is good because they got a lot of bad press because of their response was so laughable. And um, the other thing that you should know is that there was, there had been a, it did, did get a lot of press. He's getting death threats and he talked about this, but also um, uh, he had, uh, uh, there was a change.org petition in support of him and kind of telling Drexel to stand by him a hundred percent. And that got over 7,000 uh, signatures. So um, yeah. That's all that you need to know. And thanks again. And have a great New Year, guys. And we'll see you next Wednesday. All right. All righty. Bye. All right. Here we go. We are so excited to be speaking to George Ciccarello Marr, an associate professor of politics and global studies at Drexel University. And he's also the author of We Created Chavez, A People's History of the Venezuelan Revolution. Welcome, George. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and thanks for taking time out of the holiday cheer. It's been really cheerful, as you can imagine. Yeah. So, can you tell us about um, your latest brush with uh, right wing infamy? So I've been. I mean, uh, in, in a sense, I've had some experience with this. Often, it's you know some right wing uh, police supporting groups in the United States have taken uh, offense at some of my tweets before. Um, but this time it's really a, you know, it's been a qualitatively different phenomenon in the sense that a tweet that I sent out on Christmas Eve was picked up by a systematic right wing smear campaign organized between uh, sort of Breitbart and the sewer of Reddit um, to organize, uh, you know, a campaign of harassment against not only me and my family, but also my employer, which has seen my colleagues uh, and myself subject to hundreds and hundreds of kind of violent, racist, and misogynistic emails over the past couple of days. And can you tell us a little bit about how the tweets transpired, what you were doing when you tweeted it? I mean, I was essentially relaxing uh, with family. And um, and what came across my Twitter feed, which was, was the sort of virulent response to a state farm ad, which showed a black man proposing to a white woman, and the number of responses to it was really, really shocking. Uh, you know, all hashtagged white genocide saying, I'm never going to support this insurance company again because um, they're encouraging the downfall of the white race. And for anyone who's paid any attention or spent 30 seconds on Google, you know that white genocide is a mythical construct of the far right racist uh, white supremacists of the United States and elsewhere who believe that the United, that, that white America is, is collapsing due to low birth rates, intermarriage and policies and cultures of diversity. Um, and, you know, in this sense, it, it of course makes perfect sense to be happy at what is frightening um, white supremacists. Um, and so I sent out a satirical tweet mocking this made-up idea, this non-existent thing. Um, and it was quickly picked up by right-wing news sites and, and, and put into this sort of outrage machine, um, which is, is well-connected at this point, which has direct lines to not only Fox News and other outlets, but increasingly to the White House, and will have a voice in the White House in the future. Um, and so I think in one sense, this has been going on for a while and for a lot of people, uh, you know, 
there are a lot of people, especially on universities, who are subject to this kind of harassment and scrutiny, in particular women and people of color. At the same time, I think we all need to reflect on the fact that we are at a kind of turning point where the far right feels empowered uh, and is going to be more aggressive when it comes to these questions. Right. So you are basically um, mocking, simultaneously like stating solidarity with people who are in in interracial relationships or just committed to diversity um, and also mocking the idea that this is uh, actually any sort of white genocide, correct? Absolutely. And and some of the follow up tweets have said, well, you know, if if what if white, you know, know, what about how does this not exist? And I say, well, of course, whiteness is not a race. And I say, well, then blackness is not a race. I said, well, right. You know, these things are not biological things. No one really should believe that they are anymore. They're constructed. Uh, They have very real political consequences in the world. But those consequences are are diametrically opposed to one another. You know, you've got um, uh, one racial identity that implies power and and authority and one that implies the opposite guilt um, and scrutiny. Um, And and so I think um, people are, are struggling on the one hand to keep up with what it is that the right wing, the far right means by this this paranoid white genocide meme, um, but also uh, you know people are struggling with what it means to uh, to to understand race in a political way that doesn't mean essentializing it as biological. Right. There's always that. Right. Like, or it's kind of similar to the argument, like, well, whatever. Like, if we want to get over racism, then we have to stop talking about race or stop seeing race. And so, like, how can we have affirmative action if we want to get over racism? Absolutely. The colorblind, the colorblind myth. Right. And this is the this is the essential myth of the Obama years. It's this idea that we've gotten over it, that we're in a post-racial era. And lo and behold, police keep killing people. Lo and behold, black people keep resisting. And suddenly the country is very different um, in many good ways. Right. Because people are standing up, people are fighting back um, and people are no longer kind of subject to this myth that, that you know, that racism has has gone into the past. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a show last week. I did a live show. It was on identity politics. And um, one of the guests, this guy, Kazembe Balagan, who was, uh, used to be at the Brecht Center, Brecht Forum, he made this point about how in some ways um, identity politics is the response to the post-racial myth. And all of us on stage had a very, like, identity politics is is a good thing, but it's not enough. Basically like the thing that Sanders said that got him into so much trouble when he said that we have to move beyond it, which clearly meant go further than keep it, but go further than like it's necessary, but insufficient anyway. But he was talking about how that the people who really challenged the post-racial idea was actually black lives matter. And I think it's true. I mean, I think uh, the degree to which uh, these movements have changed the country is, is dramatic. And, and part of what we're seeing in Trump is a, is a backlash against that. I mean, it's a backlash against other things as well. Um, but it's a, a backlash against the fact that people are standing up. Um, and I think we need to understand that these, you know, in a sense, you know, there are very valid criticisms of identity politics. Um, I think they're also, you know, both sides are going to go overboard and push the stick too far in the other direction because identity and the way we understand ourselves is crucial. But also that, you know, white supremacy is a founding you know, element of what uh, of class oppression in the United States and always has been. And unless we get over it, we're really just kind of telling people to get over themselves and kind of join the big working class, um, which is, has not always been, you know, been a winning equation for a lot of people of color in this country. Sure. I guess, right, and then the other side of that is the don't ever talk about class because then you're being racist, as if there aren't intersections. I mean, that's the most frustrating, that's been the most frustrating thing. By the way, you can laugh because it's a radio show and we try to be funny, so 
<laughs> people, this all, I don't, I always say this and people think I'm faking it and like urging people to laugh, but it's really when I see them laughing and uh, I know that they're trying to be polite and not make noise, but yeah. This no, is it's because we got this video and, 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 you know, I can see your sort of exactly. animated hand yeah, motions. Yeah. And we're, you know, are you, are you, that's very anti-Semitic of you. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was anti-Italian. So that's why, no, I, that's, that's why, that's why I was punching at. No, we should do I'm just kidding. Saying I, Italians, Italians are butch Jews. At the end of the day, there's a lot that we share. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Bernie Jew, by the way. He just defines all of me now. Secular, secular, not religious. So you had people responding who got the joke. Like you had the real white supremacists who got that you were mocking them. But then I think you had a lot of liberals and people in general who were confused, right? What? Right. I mean, in a sense, I think the you know the white supremacists got it on the one hand but their response was totally in bad faith because they were saying two things they were saying this person gets what we mean by white genocide um, in other words falling birth rates diversity politics etc but at the same time now we're going to act him as though what he's saying is actual literal killing of millions of people right. um, um and you know of Wait, course you're saying not... white supremacists acted in bad faith Get yeah, out no, of it's here. shocking. Right? So, it's shocking. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and and this is how they then fed it into the mainstream. This is how they then sanitized it, the way that they're sanitizing Trump, that the way that they're sanitizing themselves with this label of alt right, um, and you know, and they they put it into this narrative, which which then got a lot of momentum, and they got a lot of momentum because people say, well, of course it's, you know, of course genocide is a terrible thing. I mean, except for the fact that there's never been a white genocide, and yet these are the same people that don't want to talk about black and brown genocide, that don't want to talk even about the Holocaust, and that, you know, I've gotten, as I said, hundreds of emails and threats, you know, speculating that I'm Jewish, speculating that I'm something else, calling me mystery meat, um, and, you know, and at the oh end God, of the day, so using a whole range of racist and, you know, and of course, deeply sort of the deep paranoid sexuality of the far right that comes out of the, with the labels of the cuck and the beta and the calling me low T and all of these, of course, uh, you know, really interesting uh, um, slurs that had never been subjected to before. Um, and, you know, and it, it really, it's an amazing mechanism that they've got moving these days um, because the mainstream media ate it right up and knew what they were doing. You know, when Hannity and, and Tucker Carlson, you know, are, you know, pushing these lines, they know what it is that they're doing. They know that they're enabling a narrative that is white supremacist. Uh, many of them, like Ann Coulter, are not even ashamed about this. You know, she, of course, calls for the, the final solution for indigenous peoples. Um, and, uh, you know, and so. So this is not something that, that, that it's not as though they don't know that this is happening. It's not as though they don't know that this encourages violence against people, people of color, queer and trans people, women in this country. And how do you how would you explain how that happens for skeptics who say, oh, this is just words, whatever? Uh, I, I mean, people are attacking people in the streets. And, and then, of course, people are threatening me uh, and my family uh, and uh, and I think with good reason, there's concern about what goes on on college campuses um, and the level of violence that's been brought to college campuses um, and the fact that people, whether they understand something or not, and here, you know, you know, willing to 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 receive criticism on this point as well, which is that, you know, someone that doesn't know or know the context of a tweet may be willing to, you know, to, to pick up a gun and do something extreme. And, and uh, you know, I mean, that doesn't pardon that person because, of course, uh, you know, very few people would bother to, you know, to uh, to engage in that kind of activity without understanding what it is that they're doing it for. Um, but, but, you know, we live in a world in which people's most irrational, paranoid fears 
um, at the deepest core of their white being are, are being, uh, you know, are being encouraged and being stoked. Uh, and we've seen what that can do in the streets. I think we're going to see a lot more of it um, because when we in movements take to the streets to resist deportations, if we take to the streets to resist police brutality, suddenly we're actually going to also be confronted with Trump soldiers in the streets, um, whether Trump wants them there or, you know, or says that he doesn't want them there, they're going to be there. Um, and I think we need to understand what it means to defend ourselves, understand what it means to, to keep ourselves safe. Um, and of course, I'm getting an abject lesson in that this week um, and, and glad to, you know, to know that there are movements and, and you know, and comrades out there um, who are, you know, who are, you know, putting in work to make that happen. Um, and so, you know, these are things that we're going to have to deal with going forward. We've got, you know, you, you, when something like this happens, you know, in your life is, is sort of suddenly thrown into a chaos, you wonder, well, what, you know, did this have to happen? And the reality is that it's going to happen. It's going to happen to many of us. Um, if it doesn't happen, it's probably because we're um, self-censoring. It's because we're, we're trying not to be too provocative. And, and, and these people are not going to go away. Um, this far right, resurgent far right is not going anywhere if we ignore it. So what, in terms of the responses that you got, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering what were surprising, what were expected. If you got support from people who you never thought would have come out of the woodwork to support you, who have very different ideas from yours, but were moved by the story because of freedom of speech, various issues. And if you had any surprising people who you who you maybe you think threw you under the bus that you didn't expect to, to do that? Well, I was first surprised because the, the, the statement put out by, um, by my employer, by Drexel, did not reflect what I thought um, I was going to see in that statement. I didn't expect to see a glowing endorsement of provocative uh, tweeting, but Drexel has always encouraged me to, you know, to be a participant in, you know, in public debates. And it's a great thing about universities uh, like Drexel that they encourage that kind of thing. Uh, I did not expect that it would be deemed reprehensible, especially I did not expect that they would not even realize in some senses that it was satirical or not do any research and see, you know, what had happened. So in terms of being thrown under the bus, that was a bit what that felt like. Um, other than that, you know, the response, of course, from the, the hateful trolls has been not surprising. But what has been surprising is that it's it's coordinated through kind of website forms, obviously. So emails, masses of emails coming in with uh, misleading subjects that are, are that are used to make you click on them. It would say things like course spring 2017 or something like that. And they're made to, uh, you know, to attract your attention and get you to open them. But I mean, other than that, there's been a really, uh, really amazing outpouring of support. Um, and, and this, you know, for I think analytical purposes comes comes from two directions. You know, my my own understanding of it is not strictly a free speech question or an academic freedom question, although I think academic freedom is a very important shield that we need to use these days. Um, and there are organizations, even what I consider to be, you know, uh, non-friendly organizations like FIRE um, releasing statements in support of it over this question of free expression, and I appreciate that. Um, at the same time, I think that has to be supplemented with an understanding of what it is that is going on, what it is that we're talking about, um, and the fact that we're dealing with the question of, of the, the resurgent far right, what the content of that means, um, and, and giving a little more kind of flesh to those bones when we think about what these questions uh, are all about. Um, and so for me, you know, that's, that's really the heart of the matter, namely the fact that we do not have a choice but to fight back against this resurgent you know, fascism, um, and and we need to understand that um, we need to use free expression to do that. We need to also defend the content of that um, because being you know the 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 old line that says you know I I, I loathe and, and hate what you're saying but you have a right to say it um, is in some ways uh, what Drexel said 
um, and I'm glad that they uphold my right to academic freedom and expression. Um, at the same time, saying uh, that things are reprehensible when we're at, what we're actually trying to do is fight back the most reprehensible people and movements and organizations um, on the planet at this moment um, is is an exercise in bad faith that that opens us up to uh, to greater attacks. And what about your statement about the Haitian Revolution? That was, it was tweeted out as a as a clarification uh, of sorts, um, and yeah, I well, think it's a little different, right? Because it's not actually a question of first of all, uh, you know, if it, there's a lot of explanation in, in a sense. It's not a genocide. Uh, you know, I, I understand the Haitian Revolution and I study the Haitian Revolution through people like C.L.R. James uh, in the great book, The Black Jacobins, who understand that the whites in Haiti were slave owners and were in support of slavery, in support of the return of slavery. Um, and this was a political, uh, this was a political act to, uh, to repress uh, and massacre those whites. Um, and the reality is when you're fighting slavery, you fight it by all means. When you're fighting white supremacy, you fight it by all means. Um, and there's, there's no really reason to, to think of that as anything, uh, anything but. Um, but at the same time, this, is not a, this was not a satirical tweet. This is a very straightforward uh, historical tweet. And I actually think it's a pretty uncontroversial position, position to take. Um, I believe some right-wing website picked up a tweet that said it's always just, the, of mine that said it's always justified for slaves to kill their masters. And again, I don't understand how that could be a controversial statement. I mean, as the great, uh, you know, political theorist Dave Chappelle put it once, uh, he said, he, I'd kill a slave master on every episode if I could. Um, and, and it's because slavery is illegitimate, right? Um, and what is difficult about our moment is that we've been sort of driven, you know, had this idea driven into our heads that all opinions are okay. And therefore, rational discussion and debate is how we deal with opinions. And yet, we are in a moment in which totally illegitimate opinions are in power. Um, and, you know, and this raises very important questions about whether or not we are obligated or whether or not we should uh, recognize the presidency of Trump, recognize its legitimacy or, or accept anything that comes down the, down the pike. Because, uh, you know, because there are opinions, there are politics, there are ideas that are bad and that need to be destroyed. It's interesting, right? Because this often happens, like, you know, I'll often, less now, but, you know, before the joke on the left would be kind of like, oh, look at them calling us commies and we're so not commies. Now it's different because mm -hmm. we're finally like talking about exactly. like communism and socialism. So it, it, it almost obfuscates things, right? Like, um, like, oh, communists. And we don't get to the point, which is that like, well, there's some really good things in communism, right? And mm -hmm. so this is a similar thing in which it's kind of like, you're clearly mocking the idea that anything that they're calling genocide is actually genocide but then and you're clearly not calling for violence in this context right but then you're kind of saying well but fyi i'm not a certainly not a pacifist yeah, you're not certainly a pacifist. not someone who and, and someone who, who understands that fighting is is what we need to do um that there are moments in which when we're fighting against things and systems that are so uh, violent and so brutal and need to die as john brown put it um that that, that that's that it's a war uh, and that's what it, it looks like but you know of course with more time you understand that the haitian revolution was you know again not a genocide um the haitian uh, revolutionary government uh, converted um, a whole number of what we would understand to be white soldiers who fought for the revolutionary cause to honorary blackness um, and did this really amazing thing of declaring all, uh, you know, all soldiers and all citizens of Haiti black. Um, 
as a way of subverting the, the role of whiteness in the world. Uh, and it was really this amazing symbolic, uh, you know, symbolic gesture carried out after the Haitian Revolution. And the Haitian Revolution is is this hugely important historical phenomenon that is erased from history, that is that is drained of all of its historical importance when it actually was a, a motor. Um, and, a, and a contributing factor to the simultaneous revolution in France that we place at the center of our historical understanding. Right. Conveniently not including uh, Haiti. But, mm-hmm. I mean, my thing has been for a while that I'm, a, I'm not an ideological pacifist or kind of a purist when it comes to pacifism, but I feel like in the United States and in Israel, those two places, are two places where, like, we are not going to get it done through violence because we're so out armed i mean it's like you know and and we clearly people on the left we are appropriately enough always indicting you know how militarized the u.s government is and how militarized the israeli government is right i kind of do always feel this on a gut level at least like it's just not gonna work um that we really need to my theory is that we need to make nonviolence really butch and like sexy so people and I, I think we should be making non non act nonviolent uh, direct action films. Not mm-hmm. sure what they'd look like, but <laughs> it would be good. Um, and and I'm generalizing and joking somewhat, but I'm also kind of serious. Like I think that so so much of males like so much masculinity, if we just reframed it a little bit, it would be so great. Like. <laughs> um, I mean, I think yeah, no, I think that's 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 largely true. Uh, the. I mean, the question is a strategic one, heavily, right? right? What is going to win? Um, but it's also a question, and I'm 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 very much a Fanonian. Franz Fanon is a huge inspiration of mine, and, and my book that comes out next month, actually, Decolonizing Dialectics, talks about a lot of these questions, and it talks about violence because Fanon is understood to be this apostle of sort of bloodthirsty uh, decolonial violence, and yet uh, what, what Fanon is most concerned with is, on the one hand, winning, right? And and that's that's his starting point. And when he says that decolonization is an inherently violent phenomenon, what he means in part is that the colonizer won't leave voluntarily. Um, now, what kind of force is necessary to drive colonizers out is is the question. And even Gandhi recognized, he said, we need force, but I call it soul force. And this is what it looks like. Um, but for Fanon, the other piece is very important, especially for black and colonized peoples, um, which is the self-transformation through struggle. Um, and this is really the central piece, which is that people standing up for themselves and fighting against an oppressor changes who they are, makes them into what he calls as humans, right? They become, they move from being a thing to being a human, um, and and it radicalizes their very nature. Um, and uh, and this is central to him. It's part of what he's under, what he understands as violence, um, and, but it's also something that can happen through through struggle that is nonviolent. It can happen through struggle that is combative, that is confrontational. Um, And every time you stand up against someone, really, you feel that. Um, And I think that's an essential part of what we need to understand. Um, And then the final piece is that, is that, you know, Michael, Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin, um, Renisha McBride, Forfanon, they were violent. Why? Because they were black in a white world. Um, They were, they, they stood for and were already violent and there was nothing they could have done. That would have made them nonviolent. If they sat down in the street and crossed their arms, you would see descriptions in the press of these sort of aggressive, you know, uh, you know, black youth. Um, and and so the final piece for him is the, the inescapability of that. And so when when we can't escape, or when certain subjects can't escape being deemed violent, then you got this question of how is it that you can be nonviolent, and is it and is nonviolent almost like a privileged uh, position to occupy? And you get this a lot, right, in Israel and Palestine, in these 
productive debates between kind of Israeli peace activists and Palestinians. And, and it's not to say that, that, that Israelis support nonviolence and Palestinians support armed struggle necessarily, but the question of what possibilities exist for who um, is, is a very important one in these questions. Right. Yeah, to me, it's always been like, I mean, I think we have to be honest about the false equivalency and violence and self-defense. Violence perpetuated by oppressed people is so not the the same as the violence committed by the state or violence committed by the privileged person, right, at all. But again, it is a question of strategy. Um, and I think we have to talk about it in a way that makes it clear that we're not condemning. It's not just a moral issue, because um, I think we lose a lot of people if we do it that way, going back to the strategy. But of course, I think it is very morally different. Um, some, um, yeah, because I mean, how do you see resistance as a as an academic, but do you consider yourself an organizer or do you? Yeah, no, of course. I, I organize. Uh, I mean, I, I live in Mexico City right now. Um, and so I'm taking a bit of a hiatus, but, you know, historically organized in first in the Bay Area um, or not first, but around the, the murder of Oscar Grant um, mm-hmm. in a number of organizations that transformed the city through mass revolts and even rioting. Um, and, and and the recent years have been a kind of reminder of this. I've been in Philly during that time organizing, again, around Trayvon Martin, um, around uh, police brutality in the case of Brandon Tate Brown, and really pushing hard and, and winning some victories against the police commissioner, um, Charles Ramsey, who's now you know Obama's kind of point person on these questions. But what we've seen nationally is that people rebelling, revolting in the streets, um, resisting, uh, refusing the binders of their traditional organizations or of, of these sort of self-appointed uh, black leadership that is very much sold out to uh, to the power structure um, and just taking to the streets themselves have, have changed the landscape of the country. That is what changed, right? Um, Kianga Yamada-Taylor's book uh, from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation is really a, an amazing account of this. And it shows very clearly not only how uh, you know, black perspe- perceptions change in the 60s as in today, but also how this this has impacted white uh, sentiment, right? And the fact that people now are more likely to understand the structural realities of uh, what black Americans go through. Uh, and that shows up in polling data. It shows up in it. And it's a really important, crucial, uh, you know, uh, element in understanding the role of autonomous black struggles, right? And this gets back to the question of, it's not so much that we all get together around a basic platform, um, of sort of $15 an hour or whatever else um, and, and claim that that's going to unify the working class. It's that black struggles in the streets also help to propel um, the country as a whole and to propel um, poor people and working people to get together and to, to struggle with these questions and to get over these questions. Right. Um, uh, can you tell us about your book that you're working on? So I got uh, you know, a book that just came out on Venezuela called Building the Commune that's about taking over space, building self-managed uh, and radically democratic production in Venezuela in a very, very difficult time, a, you know, a time of macroeconomic and political instability in which kind of the glimmer of hope comes from these grassroots communes that are spreading across the country. Um, and my book that's about to come out, Decolonizing Dialectics, is a little more theoretical, but at the same time, it, it begins with and deals with a lot of these questions of, about what it means to, that we that our moment is one of struggle, that people are taking to the streets worldwide. Um, that we've got movements from Tahrir Square to Occupy to the Indignados across Latin America struggling against 
um, the sort of neoliberal capitalist offensive of you know of recent decades, um, and pushing back against that, and how, what it means to fight it, uh, and and what kind of conceptions we need, you know, drawing on thinkers from Latin America to the Caribbean to you know Fanon, this sort of transnational decolonial thinker, um, and thinking through what it means to struggle in this present moment, uh, trying to bring together the best elements of of Hegelian and Marxist dialectics with radical uh, struggles for decolonization that predated um, and continue today. Some of the questions I got from Twitter. Are you surprised Drexel University was seemingly unaware of the concept of white genocide and how it's used by white supremacists? I was disappointed. Um, I think universities are complex institutions that are trying to do damage control as quickly as possible. Um, and, And there are a lot of forces at play, some good and some bad. Um, and so I, I, I definitely you know, wish they had put the effort into understanding that it was satire at the very least. Um, you know, putting you know putting that in the statement would have would have clarified a lot of things right from the beginning, um, rather than acting as though it were actually a straightforwardly factual uh, tweet. And this gets to the other question, which is uh, what you know this. Uh, and and I here I think Fox News is. You know, shock, shockingly, Fox News is doing me a disservice um, because they're saying that it's that I'm claiming that it was a joke. But satire is not joking, you know, and, and I, satire is dead serious. And the people that we're dealing with and we're trying to humiliate and take down are dead serious. And so I think we need to understand the difference between joking um, and satire. That's such an important point. And I made the mistake of uh, joking about being hacked, which I thought was clearly a joke as well. And then Breitbart thought oh, that that's was really funny, as well. Yeah. Um, but no, of course I wasn't hacked, you know, and, you know, people are right that that would mean I've been hacked every single day for the past three years. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and calling it a joke does a discredit to what we're actually trying to do in the world. Right. I like this one. Put this on your website. How does he carry around those enormous balls? Most people would still be under the couch with a million Nazis after them. I know that's very gendered. My response would be that, you know, I've been I've been called a ballless cuck by the trolls. So, I mean, I think there's our answer. There you go. There you go. They're doing a favor. They're keeping you humble. Yes. Um, do you know Aaron, Arun Gupta? Do you know him personally? Yes. Arun? Okay. No, not really. Not no, personally. Okay. He stands behind you, but he doesn't like the, the soul patch. He draws the line at anything associated with Fred Durst. Just telling you what he said. I need to clarify this, actually. This is a really important point, is that a lot of the pictures circulating of me, I have a soul patch. And yet the reality is that I've actually had a beard for, for well over a year now. And, and this is actually, it's a really important clarification. I can't let that one sit out there in the ether. Yeah, good for you. You hear that, guys? Stop the smears. There is There's no, no soul <laughs> There's patch. There's no soul patch of. involved. Yeah, but there has been a soul patch. Have you uh, now yeah. or were you ever a wearer, a donor of a soul patch? There are pictures that would confirm the presence of a soul patch. Absolutely. And you know what? A lesser man than you would say that they were photoshopped, but you own Photoshopped, etc. Yeah. You'll have to come back and tell us inside the mind of a, a soul patch wearing man. Um, <laughs> it can be your memoirs. So I'm glad we got the soul patch one. It's super important. Does this message of racial division conflict with communist desire to promote class consciousness? Absolutely not. I mean, the reality is that uh, communism has been uh, historically, uh, a go-to uh, resource for Black liberation struggles. Um, a whole number of, and this is the, these kind of comments are really, you know, what's most frustrating is that they, in fact, erase a whole history of Black revolutionary communists in the party and outside of the party, the African Blood Brotherhood, a whole, you know, radical militants in the party attempting to struggle with and force 
a rigid party to deal with, uh, you know, to deal with these questions, which it did very well for a number of years and then retreated on, um, at which point you had black communists leaving the party um, uh, over very clear, you know, very clear points. But uh, the important point and the point recognized by everyone from people like Richard Wright, who was uh, definitely more of a traditional communist, to C.L.R. James, who's more of a radical uh, Trotskyist, um, to people in the present who uh, uphold and support the radical potential of uh, Black Lives Matter and other movements is that autonomous black struggles are crucial um, to pushing forward class struggles. Um, you know, you have uh, people like Adolph Reed uh, coming out and, and attacking Black Lives Matter as inherently bourgeois or implying that it entails unifying with uh, the so-called black bourgeoisie when it does not, um, and failing to recognize not only the, the class content of these struggles, um, which is, of course, sometimes clouded by identity-type uh, politics, um, but also the fact that what has happened um, over the past couple of years is undeniable, and the fact that these things are in, inextricably tied to and bound with the question of race, um, and that the best lesson for um, if we're talking about white, the white working class or white workers or poor white people, the best and most transformative lesson is to not only struggle alongside um, black people for their liberation, but to see that happen, to see people stand up and fight. Um, and that is what changes minds. And that is what uh, has shifted this country um, in a dramatic way over the past couple of years. And class unity can only be the product of struggle over this question of race in the United States because it's always been so central. Du Bois and Black Reconstruction is the best account of this. The class has been divided. The white working class needs to be pulled into uh, uh, this uh, an understanding of class unity. And the question is, how does that come about? And it doesn't come about through ignoring it. You just reminded me of so much when you were talking a lot of Bernie, the Bernie Sanders stuff, right? And I actually know the guy, Leslie Lee. I've had him on my show a bunch of times. Leslie Lee created the Bernie Made Me White hashtag, which was in response to... I don't know if you know the story behind that. His tweet being, um, ever since Bernie made me white, I've been watching Friends nonstop or binging on Friends. <laughs> but the, the whole, like, the ironic, unintentionally ironic, um, tragically ironic, invisibilization and erasure of POC Sanders supporters. Like, every time a white person or a person of color was, was like, portraying Sanders supporters as all straight white young dudes it was like you realize you're doing exactly like what you're accusing him mm -hmm. and his campaign of doing um which is turning you know poc into a monolith and mm -hmm. uh, failing to recognize them so we see so much of this horrible divisive like pseudo woke but actually totally neoliberal conservative centrist democrat stuff that's saying you know any talk of class consciousness is racist or oh it's easy you know like hillary's thing about um well breaking up the banks and racism no as if sanders was ever like by the way want to break up the banks we're never gonna have to worry about racism which he didn't say and the other story of course is that yeah there were there the people most hard hurt like the most hurt by the the housing crisis the bubble was for poc specific especially black people Anyway, so how do we speak to class in a way that doesn't um, kind of er uh, ignore or erase the significant differences that it, that are the black experience, the white experience, the Latin experience, the every experience? Yeah, and I think that's an essential question because there were there were really sharp and interesting debates after the election, right? Because the initial response of some people was to say racist elected Trump, 
And the initial response of other people was to say the abandoned white working class um, elected Trump. Um, and then people would say, well, the working class isn't all white. You know, who is it that we're talking about? Who has been abandoned? How does that account for what is clearly an uptick in racism? And I think um, but the, the, the reality is that race and class intersect, you know, people that are abandoned, um, that abandonment is going to be, you know, people have been abandoned by decades of Clintonism and Bushism, um, and that is going to harden in different ways into uh, racism um, by, in, by in white people in a way that it, of course, won't uh, in people of color. Um, and we need to understand that this sediments over time and it becomes separated by communities and black communities are going to respond in very different ways as white communities. And the Clintons, of course, tapped into the black communities for or, um, this expected support that never delivered any goods to those communities, um, and so I don't think I don't think either of these answers really accounts for what's going on uh, if we're trying to deal with these these real difficult questions. And on top of all of that, Clinton hardly lost and could have won in a number of ways just by campaigning a couple more times or by you know the votes she could have won on the votes of blacks who re- didn't turn out to vote, um, or she could have won on the votes of you know of poor Wisconsin. whites. Yeah, the, going the, to Wisconsin maybe yeah and so i mean there are lots of different ways now i think that's what part it's part of what what makes the argument so complicated um but uh, you know but we need to understand that communities have very 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 different experiences of class um and they experience it in, in very racialized ways they both experience it in racialized ways whether white or black um and there's some things that are shared there and there are some things that are absolutely not shared um and and the segregation of the country, which has sharpened in recent years, has not declined, um, makes them more difficult, right? Because people don't live by each other. They don't talk to each other. White people flee Philadelphia for the suburbs and don't have any kind of shared experience um, with people who are abandoned in North and West and South Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, we need a, a better way of, of understanding things, these things that doesn't fall for uh, either, you know, black people really just need to get on the class boat um, or that people talking about class, of course, are, are diverting attention away from um, these other struggles or, you know, especially when both of these can be ploys for the Democrats. Totally right. I mean, my, the scariest thing for me, I was talking about this with Doug uh, earlier today, is kind of the idea that like, well, these are racist white, there are racist whites um, and they need to not be catered to as if speaking to people who we may or may not write off as racist or bigots as if that's somehow, I mean, that's like, not to sound corny, but that's kind of one of the only ways that we fight the racism. Like, you're not enabling racism when you speak to people in terms that they understand, because white people, like every other people, all people, we're not, there, there's not like, we can't, people aren't angelic, right? We People are self-interested. They're like humans. They We all respond to material conditions, and to like ideology right and so the idea that somehow these people need to be to be written off and that to address their concerns is somehow a betrayal of non-whites um i just think is so dangerous and it's also just like forget the morality of it just from a strategy point of view like you so the, the plan is just wait to wait for these people to die off uh you're it all comes full circle it is all i want for christmas mm-hmm. no i mean uh, you know I mean, wb du bois did not spend 800 pages writing about the great potential and possibility of class unity around the Civil War, um, only to, to, to say that we should, you know, abandon these questions. Um, I think we need to take poor whites with the utmost seriousness, but that does not mean catering to what they believe, right? Um, and I think it often means 
you know, hitting them upside the head, or it often means them feeling very uncomfortable, frightened, dislocated, scared, um, and being told that they are absolutely wrong in what they've been taught is the explanation for their condition. Um, and so I think, you know, uh, you know, one of the mistakes is to say, well, if you take them seriously, it means, it means just, just bowing to their existing consciousness. And one of the, the idea is that blacks in, in the history of the United States have struggled alongside white militants and white poor people and have struggled against them. And both of those things have been productive and good. And both of those things point toward class unity. And that's, I think, what's hard for people to understand is that, um, you know, black workers struggling against white workers against their for their, you know, over their privileges builds a stronger unity. Right. It builds a stronger working class that understands how to unify and fight. Yeah. Arish Singh, who's a comedian, a really smart guy, he's Sikh um, American. I had him on my show. And one of the things he said that was like so not obvious, but so not that simple, but and yet such an important point that's rarely made is he's like, when when the when like angry white people are dismissed or written off as like irredeemably bigoted or as like having no kind of as having no reasonable demands at all, it's like the people who suffer the most are me. He he said this like are the people are people of color like the people at the receiving end of racism, the ones who are have who think strategically. I would say I mean, obviously people who I agree with politically. Like he's saying like we're the ones who are hurt when we refuse to. And he's not self loathing. He's not saying go path punch the guy in the arm when he makes a racist joke and tell him yeah it's just a joke who cares I know you're good people. No, he's saying like you talk to people. I mean this is kind of like the first election where people are kind of openly saying like. It's it's beneath us to to try to change hearts and minds, and I'm used to, I'm used to being the one who's like that's not enough like touchy feely kumbaya, but like that's not even the minimum anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yep, yep. Um, we need we need to change hearts and minds, but that doesn't like, again that we we change that through struggle. Sure, and there's a Venn diagram, right? There are people who are already with us. There are people who are never going to be with us, and then there the most people I think are in that middle ground where they need to be fought for. Again, it's like mm-hmm. I don't care if you could think that these are garbage people, whatever class term classes terms people use, trash like backwoods, bigots, toothless, whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I disagree with you, but even if you think that, you want these people not to vote for the racists. Which of the books do you buy first? So decolonizing dialectics drops maybe the beginning of February, late January um, from Duke University Press. Um, Building the Commune is currently on sale from Verso, and these things are cheap. I think the everything's fifty percent off. I think the ebook maybe is ninety percent off, and so you know it's it, you're basically hardly contributing to capital accumulation um, at all. Yeah, and you're teaching people how to dismantle capitalism, so it's a win. Absolutely. Um, and you got you guys. It's not too late. You know, you still owe people some presents, so. After you've done the Katie Halper Show Patreon donation, which is clearly, you know, where your loyalties lie. No, just kidding. You can do both. Um, and, uh, in fact, give me less so you can buy um, buy this book. How do you like that? Isn't, I'm such, a, I'm such a, a martyr. Any resolution, a New Year's resolution, or the best takeaway from this year's election, the worst takeaway that you think needs to die – the worst narrative you think think needs to die. Any resolution you recommend for anyone? I think the, the I think it's become perfectly clear that the Democrats won't save us. They don't understand political power. They don't understand the powers in the streets. And I think that people are uh, willing to resist Trump, and we need to keep that resistance outside of the formal political apparatus. And we need to uh, understand that the reason 
uh, that the country is transformed is because people are fighting in the streets. They're not fighting within the party necessarily. Um, Bernie Sanders, who I'm very sympathetic with, is a reflection and an echo of decades of struggle. Um, and, and the only reason that we are in a situation which we very could have well have had a self-described socialist for president is because those struggles have broken out. And it's no coincidence that they've broken out um, in the black community and around black struggles against police brutality, which have always been the focal point in this country for broader popular struggles from abolition, um, setting off uh, early you know, waves of feminism and socialism to the civil rights movement in which white uh, youth saw the, the, you know, the courageous uh, resistance um, of um, particularly black Southerners to Jim Crow. And that inspired them to become militants uh, in turn. And I think um, that's where our power is. And that's how we need to understand it in the coming years, because the Democrats will not save us trying to get a populist at the head of the Democratic Party or as a candidate as a palliative measure, which is not going to help us fight Trumpism because the Democrats have systematically misunderstood um, how Trumpism works. And that's a huge part of why they lost this election. Ooh, so you're, you're like, don't fall for this Ellison um, Paris divide. I mean, in a way, it's, it's I mean, it's interesting, but like uh, it, it's the Democratic Party trying to not die. Um, right. And, yeah. So, oh, I mean, so you, you're calling for Democratic gen, Democrat genocide. <laughs> <laughs> I hope, exactly. man. I was yeah, like, the thing was like, yeah. cool if Bernie wins. Uh, if not, hopefully both parties destroy themselves. <laughs> right. And now, yeah, uh, unfortunately, uh, as Trump ascends. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we need to be prepared to directly resist the Trump presidency, to do so in the streets, to directly resist police brutality and police violence, and to resist this this plan to deport uh, millions across the southern border, um, and to, to do so through organization in and around um, affected communities, um, through the establishment of uh, you know what are called rapid response networks for both police brutality on the one hand and deportations, you know, and the idea is, is that, you know, communities are able to defend themselves and they're able to, you know, to play a huge role in organizing resistance to make these things um, uh, go away or to make, uh, you know, to make Trump's, go- you know, to make Trump, <laughs> to make it impossible for Trump to govern the country. Right. Ungo- ungovernability. Ungovernable. Nice. All right. So that's your New Year's resolution, ungovernability. My New Year's resolution is ungovernable. It is ungovernable. Nice. Well, thank you so much, George Garello Mar, and definitely come back and let us know when you're in New York City. We'll have you live in studio. Of course. You'll have me for some pizza for sure. Yes. 